And so with that in mind, we turn once again to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verse 9. You know, Wes Morris wrote a book a while back called The Shoes of a Fisherman. In this book, he related something that Pope John Paul said, who was a strong believer and wrote a lot of good stuff that I've read that has helped me, though I don't agree with all of his theology. But he wrote this, John Paul, in his diary. It was his response to a letter from a woman uh, that he received from a woman who had gone through a great tragedy. And he wrote this, Ruth's letter reminded me that the real battleground was elsewhere, not at St. Peter's Basilica, but in lonely rooms and in solitary hearts with folks who might not have had much theology, but only an intimate and frightening familiarity with the problems of living and dying. We're going to see that he had the right instincts. We're going to see today that that's where it's at. That's where it's at in God's heart of hearts. Not in St. Peter's Basilica, not in some super church that's, you know, bursting at the seams, not in rooms full of beautiful people dressed up in their Sunday best, but in lonely rooms and in solitary hearts with people who are struggling with the problems of living and dying. Last time we saw that Christ understands us because he's been there. We're going to see today that he understands us because he is there. With the church at Smyrna, we come to a, if you remember, a much neglected doctrine of the Christian faith, and that is uh, the doctrine of who Christ, uh, who God is relationally. And, you know, you can tell that theology was written mostly by men because they tend to neglect this aspect of who he is in these great systematic theologies. I majored in systematic theology in seminary, and there's not as much there about uh, who he is on that level, and especially who he is in what we're going to be talking about today. It may be there some way tucked away in some theology, but it certainly is not emphasized. And that is how he relates, and in particular, how he feels. When I was in seminary, I learned that theologians can be like the little boy, like some husbands. Little boy that the little girl was talking to, she asked him, hey, do you want to play house? Little boy said, sure, what do you want me to do? Girl says, I want you to communicate your feelings. Little boy says, communicate my feelings. I have no idea what that means. To which she said, perfect, you can be the husband. (laughs) You won't find much about God's feelings in some systematic theologies anyway, but they are all over the place in Scripture. And that is how God relates to us and what he feels as he does, especially in lonely rooms and solitary hearts. It's an area of Christian doctrine that women relate to more readily than men. That, that, but the deep down, men need just as much as women do if they're anything like me. And the part of it that we'll be focusing on today is summed up in Isaiah 63.9 where the prophet says, in all our afflictions, he was what? Afflicted. Part of a doctrine of the loving kindness of God. In fact, just two verses earlier in Isaiah 63, he says, I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord, 
And then he goes on to tell us what his loving kindness means relationally when we're in agony. I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord. In all our afflictions, he is afflicted. So it's Revelation 2, and really starting in verse 8, where Christ says to the church at Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation. We're going to move on, but let me just stop there. Last time we focused on Christ's sympathy, that he knows to a good level. This time we're going to see he knows to a far deeper level. Last time we focused on the doctrine of Christ's sympathy, that he cares about how you're feeling. This is the upper level, the, the, the comparatively superficial level, though it's important. He, he cares about how we're feeling because he's been there. He's been through the whole gamut of human life. He's been dead. Which you, uh, he, he died, as, you, as we read here, the first and the last who was dead. The literal translation means, if you remember, he became dead. That is, he went through the whole process of dying. He's been through it all, so he really does understand how we feel. That's sympathy. This week we'll focus on Christ's empathy. Sympathy says, I care about your suffering. It's like that picture up there. Empathy goes deeper. It says, I feel your suffering. Sympathy cares about their feelings. Empathy feels their feelings. Last time we called that Christ, saw that Christ's sympathy comes from his remembrance of his lot in life. This week we're going to see that his empathy comes from his direct experience of your lot in life. All because in all our afflictions he is afflicted. And so he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. The point here is that he has more than just you know, a general knowledge of what life is like for humanity. One comes, that comes from the fact that it was, uh, you know, hard for him way back when. Oh no, he knows directly, uh, directly, not just vicariously, what it's like for you personally right now. He sure did with Smyrna. Which is why he said, I know your tribulation. And then he goes on to say, and your poverty. He's getting specific now, not just generic. Um, but you are rich, and, I, uh, and we'll focus on that later. And your poverty. And I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, and are a synagogue of Satan. This is contemporaneous knowledge, not historical knowledge. It's called accurate empathy. As we start to unpack it now, where you sit down in front of them uh, while they watch and paint a portrait, you know, uh, of their pain through your eyes and your words, and not just broad brushstrokes, but in exact detail, because you're really there with them. You, you're, you're going through it with them. We tend to read... Uh, uh, read over this in, in Smyrna, but it's fundamental to relating to someone when they're suffering. Again, it's called accurate empathy. Ever heard of the theological doctrine of accurate empathy? Well, it ought to be there. There ought to be one. It's where you don't give answers. No, you, you give feelings. That's what Christ is doing here. 
You, you, you just reflect back to them what they're going through, through eyes and words that show that you know. And so he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the blasphemy, he goes on to say, more contemporaneous things that they're experienced by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So he specifies what tribulation means for them. Not just generically. The word tribulation literally means to be squeezed between opposing forces, which reflects exactly what was happening to them. On one hand, Smyrna was the, um, the center of emperor worship in Asia Minor, and there was a temple there dedicated to Tiberius. And they refused to bend the knee, which made it very difficult for them to make a living. And on top of that, it looks like there was a lot of mob violence and uh, looting of Christians. And as a result, many of them had become poor. But that wasn't the half of it. Smyrna was this large uh, metropolitan city that had a sizable Jewish population, a sizable number of Jews who hated Christians too. And they were in the habit of making these slanderous accusations against them, all the way from claiming, as you've probably heard, that they drank blood, you know, during communion to sacrificing babies. And Christ said, I know about that. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, but are not. they're not true Jews. I know all about your tribulation. I know how you're feeling. You're between a rock uh, and a hard place. You feel trapped. You're squeezed between the Romans on one side and the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Gentiles who are persecuting you on one side and the Jews on the other. You're between three rocks and hard places. But between poverty and if that weren't bad enough, a bad enough price to pay for being a Christian, you're between poverty and blasphemy. It's behind you and it's in front of you and it's around you and you're stuck in the middle. He knew exactly what they were uh, uniquely experiencing and he told them so. He goes into detail because he knew in detail and because he knew that they needed to know that he knows in detail. Just like we do. So do you when you're a solitary heart in a lonely room. You need to know that he knows. When like David, you feel like an owl in the wilderness, Psalm 102.6, like a lonely sparrow on a housetop. Oh, you're not alone. And so the first thing he says is the first thing that we need, and that is accurate empathy that feels what they feel. I know. To a depth that you'll never comprehend. Now, there's just something about the right kind of empathy, not the kind, you know, that's condescending and makes you feel like a child that says, there, there, it's not as bad as you think. I've had to repent of saying that several times. Not the kind that makes you feel guilty, that tells you, yeah, it's bad, it's so sad, but count your blessings. Now, we may need to hear these things, but it's a long way down the road before maybe we're able to. We need first this. Or keep a stiff upper lip, or don't be ungrateful, or whatever. It's not the kind that someone offers in order to, you know, the kind of sympathy someone offers in order to get all the details. And you can kind of tell when there's an agenda. And they're going to spread it. Oh, no. 
For the despairing man there should be kindness from his friend, Job 6.14, lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. As in a loving kindness that says, a kind of loving kindness that was reflected when he said, in all our affliction he is afflicted. No, we need the empathy that's kind enough and merciful enough, knowing enough to really appreciate how hard it is and patient enough to not just to get all the details but to to really absorb all the details which he does in a way in his very body that we can't even approach for you personally. In their empathy, they don't solve the problem, they share the problem because it's theirs too. They're so connected with you that they feel its weight. Indeed, the weight of the whole of humanity. And each individually. And somehow you're no longer bearing it alone because they know your tribulation and your poverty. What difference does it make? Well, one huge difference is this. When the Lord says that he knows in in this way and not just in that way, it's an invitation to cast your burdens upon the Lord because he's already bearing them. So why hold on to them? And he's ready to bear more. Someone said that he can bear our burdens, whether they're great or small, like an ocean bears a battleship as easy as a fishing boat. (laughs) Cast your burdens upon the Lord. It's It's an invitation to open up, to talk about it, to get it off your chest, literally, as you can only do with him. To cast your burdens upon the Lord, Psalm 55, 22, and he will sustain you because he is there with you. It's what David had done through that, all through that very Psalm, Psalm 55, and I'd like to go through it, but there's not time today, but if you're going through it, I'd invite you to go to Psalm 55 because he shows us how to do it. My mother put it this way in the book she wrote, 31 Days of Praise. She put it into a prayer that we can piggyback on just like we can in the Psalms. Here's how she cast her burdens upon the Lord. And you might want to pray this with me right now if you're going through it or to prepare for that which may happen tomorrow. (laughs) Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the day when I let go of the whole burden of my sins and rested in the atoning work of Christ. And thank you that today in that same simple way, I can let go of the whole burden of my life and service, of my marriage, my children, and all my relationships, past, present, and future. I can let go of the burden of my inadequacies and my self-dependence and rest in you. How good it is to transfer these burdens from my shoulders to yours. Thank you that I can throw the whole weight of my anxieties on you, for I am your personal concern that I can pour out my heart before you, being honest about my feelings and my sins, 
Thank you that I can be still, that I can cease striving and let go and know that you are God, that I can, that I can absorb your strength and joy and peace, to think that you not only permit me to come before you, but you actually desire my fellowship, my worship, my prayers, my burdens, that you should allow your creature to have fellowship with you is wonderful enough, but that you desire it, that it gives you satisfaction, not only about my pleasures, but about my pain. It is almost too much for my understanding. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. But you know, even if you can't put it to words, you can't put your feelings to words, as we men struggle with, as I do, so I wish I could. It just stays pent up in there sometimes. But even if you can't, never mind, because he knows. And, and you can just rest without words in his knowledge, in his presence, through the Spirit of God as he descends upon your heart. Just you and him together. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me, Psalm 139.1. You understand. You understand my thought from afar. You are intimately, incarnationally acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. You're all-knowing. You can even read my mind. You've absorbed all the details, even the ones that I couldn't put to words. You know. And that's all I need. And then you stop talking and you just rest in his presence and you hear him say from Scripture, I know. To the suffering church in Smyrna is for all that are suffering. I know your tribulation and your poverty. And somehow in your lonely room, it touches your solitary heart through the spirit of the living God. Like someone said, if your trouble is long-standing, try kneeling. (laughs) Try listening to the one who says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Give me your burden, and I will give you rest. Now, in some ways, what we're talking about today is that putting it up at a higher level than, uh, theologically than we'll come down to the lowest level practically. What we're talking about today is the doctrine of his omniscience combined with the doctrine of his omnipresence. Because he knows all, right? That is, he's omniscient. And he uh, is there through it all. That is, he's omnipresent. But underneath these, there's another doctrine that makes these two things relational. And that is, he is, you might say, Omnisentient. Ever heard of the doctrine of God's omnisentience? No, I don't. It may be tucked away somewhere. I don't. I've studied it. I've never found it. Well, I, I made it up. There is no such word, but it means that He feels it all. He's not just there, and He's more than just aware though these things would be amazing enough. And he does more than just care, though that would be amazing enough. But more than caring about what you're feeling, he feels what you're feeling. 
You know, the, the bride of Christ does not have a husband who's clueless about feelings. And you women can connect with this, with Christ, in a way that we men can't. And so you can do that, and so the husband doesn't have to fill your cup as much. It's great news for most women who are into such things as we men ought to be, or if you're single, or if you're widowed, like my mom was. That's why she was able to put that prayer together, because her widowhood, her emptiness drew her to him, and he filled her, just like he can do with you. Because you have someone who's in you who knows you, who's a champion of widows in a very special way. Now, I did make the word up, but it's based on good entomology. Omnisentient comes from the Latin sentire, which means to feel, from which we get words like sense or sensation or sensitive. Hence, he's omnisentient. I had to make it up because, again, most systematic theologies don't cover the doctrine, and there's not even a word for it, but the Scripture sure covers it. What it means is this. Again, it means, summing it up, in all our afflictions, he is afflicted. So, it's not just an intellectual, you know, know know-it-all, omniscient kind of knowledge that comes with his infinite greatness. No, it's the personal knowledge of the one who feels it all, an omnisentient kind of knowledge that comes from his intimate loving kindness. And what that means is this. He's everywhere uh, and he knows everything, but wherever there's pain, that place becomes the special focus of his attention. Because his infinite greatness brings an intimate, loving kindness to lonely rooms and solitary hearts, an intimate, loving kindness that is omnisentient. And what does that mean in practice? Well, Mother Teresa was once being interviewed by a reporter, a reporter who was pretty skeptical, and he asked an age-old question, testing her faith. She said, where is God when a baby dies in a, black, a back alley in Calcutta? Her response, she said this, God is there suffering with the baby. That's it. And then she went on to say this, and to him, like Christ, she turned the tables on this guy. She said, the real question is, where are you? Your philosophical differences, distance, asking these intellectual questions. Hypocrite. We're hypocrites too. Where are you? God is there suffering with the baby. That is sound theology. You know, someone asked Susanna Wesley, which of her, you may have heard this, which of her 12 children she loved the most? She said this, I love the one who is sick until he is well. The focus of my attention is is uniquely on him or her. That's right out of the Bible. The one who mourns until he is comforted. The one who is lost until he is found. She's reflecting sound theology because she loved like God loves. 
Which is why Christ said, I was hungry. And you gave him to eat? No, you gave me to eat. This is not just figurative, this is literal. I'm so into it with them that I am hungry when they're hungry. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. For to the extent that you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me, because I know their tribulation and their poverty. He's saying, if you only knew the way I know, you'd be there too. We saw last time that this word for know goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where it says that Adam knew Eve, right? That is, he became one flesh with her. It means that he had the kind of knowledge that comes from the most intimate uh, possible relationship. It's the kind that comes when you've made yourself one flesh with another and for better or worse, there's no separating you. which is just what he has done with us. He's the bridegroom. We're the bride. We're his now his body. And divorce is not in his vocabulary. You know, one man said that marriage is a decision to put all our eggs in one basket. God knows. To go for broke, to bet all the marbles, for better or worse. He said, to squander one's whole life on another, which is precisely what Christ has done with us. Because inseparably, for all eternity, we are his body and he is the head. And so while he is, you know, omnisentient through all creation, these sensations are uh, intensified All through his body. I mean, what happens when one member of your body suffers? Where do the sensations immediately go? Where do you experience them more than any other place? Right here in the head. And when he said, I know, he really did know. That's why he said to Paul on the Damascus Road, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me, and then he says this, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. He's saying it's hard for me when you kick against the goads. Goads are like spurs. They're like what, you know, cowboys wear uh, on their boots. And the image here is of Saul digging his spurs into the side of a horse, goading it to death. Saul thought he was persecuting Christians. But Christ said, it's hard for me when you kick against the ghost. That is, it's my sides, not just figuratively, but literally, that you're digging into my body. Oh, he knows your tribulation and your poverty uniquely because you are part of his body if you know him as your Savior. Just the way he is. Just the way he is in his omnisentience. It's the way he's always been long before he had a body. I've got all sorts of New Testament passages here where he shows this is the case. I wish there were time to go into them, but he hears your cry. He feels 
your tears. As the psalmist said, they're all in a bottle. His bottle. It's like the old hymn, one that I loved when I was in junior high school, when it first came out, Come to the Water. You said you'd come and share all my sorrows. That's it. You said you'd be there for all my tomorrows. I came so close to sending you away, but just like you promised, you came here literally to stay. I just had to pray, which is, we've seen the application. That's our response to these doctrines. That, um, uh, just like in Psalm 55, I just had to pray. That's how I connect with it. And Jesus said, come. Come to the water. Stand by my side. I know. I know you are thirsty. You won't be denied. I felt every tear drop when in darkness you cried. And I came to remind you that for those tears I died. Which pretty well sums it up as you'll see at the bottom of your notes and you can fill in the blank. I felt every tear drop when in darkness you cried and I strove to remind you that for those tears I died. He didn't just feel your pain then as one who is omniscient. omniscient. He did something as one who is omnipotent with the pain that he absorbed. He, and he's doing it to this day. He's turning it after that pattern from pain to gain. Every last drop of it, every drop of blood, every shed tear. After the pattern of the cross. And so why do you say, O oh, Jacob, Isaiah 40, 12, And assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? His understanding of you is inscrutable. Which means it's deeper than we'll ever know. To the point of being omnisentient. To the point that that's where it's at. That's where he's at. This is where the real battleground is in his opinion. Not just in St. Peter's Basilica, but in lonely rooms. And in solitary hearts with folks who have little theology, but only a frightening familiarity, and they get more frightening the older we get with the problems of living and dying. Yeah, that's what Mother Teresa said. Where is, some, where is God when some baby dies in the back alley in Calcutta? God is there suffering with the baby. The real question is, where are you? It's in the benediction that we hear Every week, if you think about it. Because it's the core of our calling, from the core of our relationship with Him, that out of that we, both as individuals and supremely as His body, 
strengthen the faint-hearted as we go out there and support the weak, as we help the suffering, and through all that, share the gospel.